through our, our trek through this gospel. This morning, we're going to be looking at the second half of chapter 2, so uh, John chapter 2, and in a few moments, I will begin in verse 13. Uh, during my time in Southeast Asia, I spent uh, about half of the time or, or two-thirds of the time in the, in the country of Thailand, and then spent several days as well in the country of Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. And, uh, while, uh, and, and while I was in Thailand, we spent a lot of time in the city of Bangkok, where in the city of Bangkok, there are about 12,000 uh, Christian refugees. These are people who have uh, tried to escape persecution for their faith from the country of Pakistan. And, and there in the city of Bangkok, there is a, a guy who was formerly an evangelist uh, of the Christian faith in Pakistan. His name is Pastor Kashif. I would tell you his last name, but I would butcher it because I, my, my Urdu is very bad and I can't pronounce his, his uh, last name properly. And over the course of several days, we visited with, uh, uh, in a network of house churches that Pastor Kashif has established for these Pakistani families where we would meet in, in their apartments or we would meet on the rooftops of buildings. And when we would gather together, generally, we would have to be very quiet because uh, all of their neighbors that are the Thai people uh, are not very fond of the Pakistani immigrants because at this point, they've all overstayed their visas. They're all illegally there in the country, but they only have two choices outside of hiding, and that is either be arrested and go to the immigration detention center, which is like a third world country prison, or be shipped back to Pakistan where they face persecution again. And so in one of the particular house church meetings while we were gathered, there were three different families that were there. Uh, the, ho the home where we were gathered, it was a, a mom and a dad and their two teenage kids, and then they had one very small child as well. And then there was an older lady that was one of the neighbors as well, and then another young couple uh, that they were all Pakistanis that were gathered. And so we sang, uh, they sang very quietly in their native tongue from Pakistan. It's the, they would sing in, in this language, Urdu. And uh, they would sing, and Pastor Kashif would lead them in prayer, and he would pray for all of their needs. And, and then I would uh, take it's anywhere from 15 to 30 minutes to teach a Bible study for them. And, and then we would take time to pray individually for each one of them. Because they're in a, in a foreign land where they have no resources, they have no finances to take care of themselves, they can't pay to send their children to school, they can't pay to go to the doctors. Uh, most of them, uh, the men, are either employed illegally by another Thai person because it's illegal uh, to employ uh, an immigrant who has overstayed their visa, or they just operate on the good graces of other people giving them groceries. And so each one of these people, if they had a physical need, a physical ailment, they would ask for us to pray for them. And so during the course of, of all of these house church visits, we prayed for older people that were dealing with joint problems all the way to people who needed hip replacements, but there was no way they could afford to get that done, to people walking up to us with their infants in their arms asking us to pray for their little baby girl because they, they, she had been diagnosed with a hole in her heart. And, and they had no other recourse but prayer. And on one particular visit, uh, they, they introduced us to an older gentleman. He was the grandfather in this one particular family of this Pakistani family. And they said, uh, and as we prayed for them, they said, well, we want to tell you what happened to our grandfather. And, uh, and, and they said he was, he was diagnosed with kidney failure. 
His kidney was, was, was withering away, and we couldn't afford dialysis. We couldn't afford any medicine. We couldn't afford even a special diet for him. So all we could do was pray. And, and we prayed for a few weeks, and now his kidney is healed. And, and this, is, this, is the, this is the reality of our brothers and sisters in Christ that operate uh, in, in countries like this where they are suffering and they are persecuted for their faith. They have nothing. They have nothing but prayer. And we say that almost, I, I say that almost with tragedy in my voice. They have nothing but prayer. And, and yet what I ought to say is they have everything by prayer. I mean, these people are sustained by the very grace and the majesty and the beauty and the goodness of God. They absolutely trust that he is going to care for their needs according to his riches in glory. And so they just cast all of their cares, all of their mind, all of their hearts into the hands of a loving God that they say, we know that he will care for us. And so this one particular family that I started this whole story with, and then I'll, I'll relay all of this in, I hope, into John chapter 2 this morning, is all of this, this family, we gathered in this, in this little uh, apartment, and all of them lived in these, in these one-room apartments that were about 17 feet by 17 feet in size. So however many people they had, that's how they, they all lived there. They would have one big bed that had been cobbled together by whatever lumber they could find. They usually had one kind of closet pantry that they could put all their stuff in. They had a little tiny kitchenette and a little washroom that was just a tiled room where it had a sink, a toilet, and a, and a shower spigot. And, and this is where they lived. And so here we are, we're gathered in this room with about 15 people, and Pastor Kashif and myself and our partner with More International, his, he's a Brazilian missionary, his name is Rafael, and, and then a translator who was another pastor uh, who was there helping us out. And, and as, as we went through and we sang quietly and we prayed quietly, although Pastor Kashif, I, I don't know, he didn't have quiet on his volume setting, by the way. Um, it just didn't, it went all the way up to 11, all the time. And, um, and, so, and so he prayed and then I taught for a while and, and then we prayed for this family. And then at the end before we left, when we were saying all of our kind of goodbyes, they stopped Pastor Kashif. And they said, well, we have something very important that after the Bible study and the singing and the praying today, we have something very important that we want to tell you. And so we all stopped to find out what it is that was going to be this important thing, and they're translating it so that we would know. And they said, well, we, um, while we were in Pakistan, we, we were a part of a Roman Catholic church, but we've never been all that very dedicated to our faith. We were identified as Christians, which is why we suffered for our faith, and we were accused of blasphemy in that Islamic country, and we had to flee for our lives. But now that we're here and that we have understood what true suffering for your faith is and how important it is, we want to be baptized, our whole family. And this morning, uh, uh, or wait a minute, yeah, whatever day it is over there, um, they were baptized in a hotel swimming pool. The, the five members of this family. And so this is why we partner. This is why we go. This is why we minister in other places. This is why we take grace and encouragement to people that need it, that need to be bolstered in their faith so that they know that they are not alone, that they're part of a global family of churches, so that when they worship, that they don't think that all that are worshiping in the world are just the 13 or 15 people in a 17 by 17 foot apartment but they realize that there are brothers and sisters around the world that are lifting them up before God the Father, asking that He would shower them with grace and with mercy and with encouragement. And that's why we go, because 
worship, whether it happens in a room this size with lights and video screens and, and instrumentation, or it happens in a room in the middle of Bangkok, Thailand, where literally in one of the worship services, they, they had two musical instruments. One was a plastic chair that somebody was playing the drums on, and one was a metal bowl that somebody used in order to make a tinking sound in order to go along with the song that we were singing. That was the only instruments that any of the Pakistanis ever had, was either a plastic chair or a metal bowl. And, and, and their worship was passionate, and it was fueled by their love for Christ and their dedication to what He was doing in their lives. And so what we're going to see this morning in John chapter 2 verse 13 and following, is a place in the, in the life of the people of God where they had lost a sense of worship. And so I, I want to address the idea in, in, this, in this part of, of the book of John about how the work of God brings healing for our souls when Jesus intervenes in our lives. So here in John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Jewish Passover was near And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now, let me pause here. Let me explain what a money changer was. Uh, In the temple in Jerusalem, because they were in the middle of the Roman Empire and and Israel had been overrun by the Roman Empire, there was all sorts of currencies that operated within the empire. There was the empire currency that was stamped with the face of Caesar, but then in all of the other nations that the Roman Empire had overrun, they still retained some of their currency forms as well, including in the country uh, that had been Israel that was now part of the Roman Empire that Jerusalem was overrun by. And so, the Roman Empire had tried to standardize all of the monetary currency across the empire, but everybody resisted it. And so, people, when they would come with their offerings to the temple, they would bring currency from all different sorts and kinds. And so, the, the priests in the temple had made the decision to come up with a temple currency. There was a type of coin that was used to make offerings at the temple. And so then there started a little cottage industry business that some guys came up with of let's establish an exchange rate for all the currencies around the empire where people can come and they can turn in their coins for the temple coins in order to make their offerings. So there were the money changers sitting there. Verse 15, After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. And he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. So if anybody ever asks you what would Jesus do, just remember that one option is making a whip and turning over tables. Verse 17. And his disciples remembered that it is written, and they remembered this verse from the Old Testament, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, replied to Jesus, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build 
And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me pray for a moment. God, we ask that Your Word would transform our hearts, that it would guide us to have a passionate worship for You, that, Lord, that You would guide us toward repentance where we find ourselves rebelling against You, and, Lord, that we would be a people of faith who would trust in nothing but the resurrection. For it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. When I think about the idea of healing, uh, oftentimes, just as the story I recounted about the, the grandfather who had a kidney stone or a failing kidney healed and, and a family that had a little baby with a hole in her heart, that they want physical healing. When we think about healing, we normally think about our bodies, but when it comes to Scripture, healing is most associated with our souls. And, and this passage presents to us three choices that we must make in order to have healing for our souls. The first choice that we have to make is between self-interest versus worship. Which one are we going to choose? Now, the money changers and the sellers in this passage where Jesus goes in, and typically we call this cleansing the temple, they had set this up a long time ago, again, because of the, the temple currency. But then it talks about how he overturns these tables and he runs out the people that are selling particular animals. And the reason that he does so is because when you came to the temple, you, you brought both a financial offering, but then also a physical offering. You would bring an, an, an ox or a sheep or a dove. Maybe you would bring part of your crops. It was called bringing your first fruits. It was the tithe. You hear us refer to that a lot of times, that you bring the first 10% of what you earn and you sacrifice it to the work of God. Well, because people would travel from such long distances, they grew weary of bringing an ox with them, of having to carry a cage with doves in it, or having to drag a sheep along. And so somebody came up with the brilliant idea, instead of asking people to bring their offerings from their home, why don't we just set up a storefront near the temple where people can show up and they can buy something that is not theirs originally. They can buy something to then take into the temple and, to, and they can sacrifice that. We'll make it convenient. We'll make it easier for people because after all, I mean, they're coming all the way to the temple. They've traveled for days in order to get here. We need to make it easy for them because sacrifice, come on, let's admit, sacrifice is sacrificial. It's hard. We need to make it easy. Well, if you know anything about the temple, and if you don't, I'm going to explain it really quickly, the, the, the actual geography of the temple. There are several rooms to the temple in Jerusalem. The most inner room is called the Holy of Holies. It is, where, it is a very small room where the Ark of the Covenant is held, and you don't open the Ark of the Covenant, otherwise it melts your face off. All right, have all of you seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Come on, these are the jokes. These are the jokes, people. I'm jet lagging, all right? So that's where the Ark of the Covenant is, and only the high priest goes in one time a year. 
And then there is the holy place, and the holy place is where the, is where the priests would go in and out in order to perform some of the ritual sacrifices. And then as you move out, there was a court where the, where the priests would be out in public where they would do all of their teaching, and only the priests stood in this particular place. And then you'd move out one more section to the court, and it would be the court of all of the Jewish men. And then you'd move out a little bit further, and it would be the court of all of the Jewish families where the women and the children would be. And then the final part of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. That's where all the rest of us would be. So anybody else who was not a Jew, that's where they would be in order to see what was going on in terms of the sacrifice and the worship and to hear the, the, the priests teach and to hear the worship of God. The problem that we find out historically is that all of the money changers and the people that are selling doves and ox and sheep and whatnot, they had all moved from outside of the temple to the court of the Gentiles. They were in the place. They were in the only place at the temple where somebody who didn't know the Word of God could come in and hear it. So the times that we've heard this interpreted as, well, those people ought not be selling T-shirts and tapes and CDs out in the foyer of the church, and Jesus would come over in here and turn over all these money changing. That's not what is going on here. What is going on is that the one place where an unbeliever could come into the temple in order to hear the Word of God taught and proclaimed and to hear the worship of the people and to understand the sacrificial system, the one place where they could go had been turned into a, a religious Walmart. It had been turned into a supermarket so that while this unbeliever is trying to understand the Word of God and what's happening, he's got to compete with this guy over here bartering about currencies and this guy over here bartering about the cost of, a, of an ox that he's going to sacrifice. And so people had made their own personal convenience more important than allowing the nations of the world that would gather at the temple for, places, for festivals like Passover be able to actually hear the Word of God proclaimed. And so it was this one place where, where they could hear it and their worship and their understanding of God's grace and God's truth was being interrupted by the very covenant people that God had given grace and truth to. It, it, was, it, it becomes the difference between being convenience-minded and kingdom-minded. It, it's the difference between I am showing up to get my tank fueled up, I am showing up for my self-interest, I am showing up so that God can take care of me, versus I'm coming to worship in order to proclaim the glories of God, and I want everybody else in the world to hear the glories of God. Worship is about God's glory being returned to Him and being declared among those who don't know it yet, but there's too many of us that we look out for ourselves first, and then we worry about God's glory later. And, 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 but if we will learn the adage that Christ is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in Him, then I won't worry about my own comfort and my own convenience and my own preferences and making it all easy for me. Instead, I want to, be, I want to find all of my satisfaction in Christ. And when you do that, you become a witness through your worship to the nations around us. Worship in the church will allow those yet to believe the opportunity to hear about the Savior that we serve. 
And I want you to think about your worship in that kind of way. If an unbeliever is sitting next to you during a worship service, are you convincing them and giving them a witness with your life that the Christ that the congregation is singing about is worth giving your life to? Or if we sit there with no rapturous effort, with with no thought whatsoever, just waiting for this part to be done, then are we, are we communicating to the person next to us that maybe is not a believer yet, none of this is really worth it. None of this really means anything. This is all just religious jargon and, and gobbledygook that you can get anywhere. Or is your worship passionate from your heart in such a way that it becomes a witness to the people around you? I would say that when it comes to us gathering for worship, our worship must be centered on the eternal Christ and accessible to the current culture. When we worship, our attention and focus has to be on Christ, and it has to be understandable to the people around us so that they get it, so that they understand it, so that they hear about forgiveness and grace and mercy, that they understand that this is a holy and a just God that, that requires a sacrifice for the payment of our sins, but that Christ has died on our behalf and He has risen from the dead. And so when worship is designed in order to give glory to God and not convenience for the individual, then we've got our priorities in the right direction. That we have, because if we design worship for our own convenience, then we have made ourselves into an idol. When we say worship is about me, Worship is about me feeling better. Worship is about me getting my tank fueled up. Worship is about making sure that everybody knows that I'm the center of the universe, and so you're here to greet me. You're here to help me. You're here for my own convenience. You're here for me. Then we've made ourselves an idol. When we come to worship, it should be about lifting up the name of Christ. And when we do that, that true worship will bring healing to our own soul, and it will bring the hope of healing to people who don't know Him yet. Well, so we have to make this choice between self-interest and worship, and Jesus, He helped the people there make a choice. He was not about to allow them to continue to defile the one place where people could come in to learn what worship was all about, and so He drove them out. Well, then it goes on, and and I, I think there's a second choice that Jesus is forcing us, He's forcing our hand to make. And the second choice is between religion and resurrection. So he, he gets challenged. He drives out all the money changers. He drives out all the salesmen. And the Jews come to Him and they say, by what power, by what authority is it that you do this? Who do you think you are, basically is what they say. Who do you think you are to, to mess up the system that we've got going to make it easy for all of our fellow Jews to come in here and to worship? Who do you think you are? By what power do you do this? And so Jesus takes it as an opportunity to give a prophecy. And he says that he, and so he says, destroy the temple. Because they say, by what sign do you do these things? So he says there in verse 19, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. Well, of course, this is an overwhelming thought to them because they know that it took 46 years to build the physical temple. And they say, how do you think that you're going to, if this place gets destroyed, that you're just going to rebuild it in three days? But of course, Jesus is referring to his body as a temple, and he is referring to his death on the cross, and he is referring to the resurrection. 
He's prophesying so that his followers will be faithful. And we find out that after the, resur- after the, the execution, the crucifixion of Jesus, that his followers had a hard time. You know, they, they, they were not so sure about what had just happened, and they were going to need the assurance of the truthfulness of Jesus. And Jesus understood that these guys that followed him, these men, these women, that they were going to encounter the temptation to be fearful and to lose all their hope after his death. I mean, after all, when Jesus is executed, when he's put on the cross, it's one of the 12 disciples, Judas, who actually betrays him. Ten of the disciples run away into the night, and one of them, Simon Peter, who is at least courageous enough to follow Jesus along while he goes through the illegal trials, ends up denying that he knows Jesus. Now, what we find is while Jesus is hanging on the cross, eventually one of the disciples, John, does make his way there. Of course, all the women are already gathered there. Uh, They're gathered around the foot of the cross while Jesus is dying, including his mother Mary. And and Jesus, from the cross, puts Mary into the care of, of his very good friend, John. And then after he dies and his body is taken off the cross and he's put into the tomb, What we find is Judas has already committed suicide and has died, and ten of the apostles are hidden in an upper room, and this guy named Thomas is nowhere to be found. So they're going to need the prediction that Jesus gives. The prediction about raising the temple is used later on to encourage the followers of Jesus that he truly is the Messiah that they've been waiting for who can bring salvation. And the resurrection is to be believed as God's great work for our spiritual healing. The Apostle Paul, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, an entire chapter about the resurrection. He says, if the resurrection is not true, then we as Christians among all men are the most miserable people who have ever lived. I mean, but because the resurrection is true, we are, among all men, the people who have the most hope. We are the ones who know where healing actually comes from. And so with the resurrection, Jesus delivers life to our dead souls, whereas there was a whole group of Jewish leaders who were waiting to see what is Jesus going to do magically in order to raise this temple back up. They were more concerned about the religious rituals of the temple than they were ever going to be concerned with this, sa- this Savior who had come to change our lives. You see, there is this huge difference between religion and the resurrection. Religion says, do. The resurrection says, done. Religion says, keep working at it. Make a way for yourself. Convince God that you're good enough, nice enough, and doggone it that people like you so that he will usher you into heaven one day. And some of you will get there by the skin of your teeth, and others of you are going to be so nice that that the the angelic choir is going to be waiting with anthems of praise for you. That's what religion says. Religion says, keep working at it, and eventually you can make it. But that is so completely and unalterably untrue. There is no way that any amount of religion in your life is going to be able to get you into the presence of God because He is utterly and completely holy, and you and I are completely not. We're never going to be able to build up enough good works in order to get there. In fact, the Bible tells us very clearly that our good works are like filthy rags before God. 
That is a quote from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses there for filthy rags is the bandage around a pussy wound. Ugh, I know, it's awful. But that's what our good works are like before God. They're nothing, they are, they are garbage, they are only worth throwing out. But the resurrection... In the resurrection, we find spiritual healing, where Jesus says, I've I've done all the work. It's complete. It's finished. And some people forget that this is the core of our faith. Without it, we are miserable. And they trust in their religious activities for their life. And Jesus offers us assurance through his death and resurrection that we can have spiritual healing. Well, there's one last little part here. One-third choice that Jesus is asking us to make so that we can find uh, healing for our souls, and it is the difference between the spectacle and the spiritual. The spectacle and the spiritual. In verse 23, it says, while he was still in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not know, he did not need anyone to testify about man for he himself knew what was in man. God knows what's in our heart. He knows the brokenness. He knows just how faithless we can be. He knows that we get wrapped up in the spectacle very oftentimes. We want something to impress us. We want something to to wow us. And so while Jesus was still in Jerusalem and performing miracles and wonders, there were people that would glom on to him and that would follow him around because he was the latest magic man that had come into town. And it said Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their heart. He knew that these were people who were more concerned with the spectacle than with spiritual transformation. They wanted the magic man to show up and do a miracle in their life, but they were not willing to submit to him as the Messiah and as the Lord. And sadly, not everyone who professes actually believes. Some people love the signs and the wonders while ignoring the God who provides them. They want to treat God like a sanctified Santa Claus where they're going to demand really good gifts from him, but when it comes to lordship, they're going to say, well, not so fast, big guy. I'm going to run my own life, thank you very much, but if you'll keep showering me with good stuff, I'll, I'll like that a lot. And Jesus is guarding his ministry and himself from those who simply just wanted the gifts but never wanted his lordship, that, that they wanted the nice things in life, but they didn't want to have to put any faith for eternity. Let me just tell you that using Jesus as a good luck charm or demanding his power to give you an easy life are poor substitutes for surrendering to his lordship to save your soul. And I'll just tell you, having been now in Thailand and Myanmar, I can tell you that this is absolutely true. Because here in the West, where we don't have any persecution for our faith, where we don't suffer at all for being believers, this is where things run rampant and things run wild, where we start making demands of God that He make our life easy. God, I just want you to come and bring grace, and I just need, I need a parking lot. I need a parking space today, God. I'm, I'm circling the Walmart parking lot, and I just need a space up close. I, I just, God, I'm, I'm late for this appointment where I'm going to go spend $7 on a cup of coffee and a little Danish with my friend, and I need you to make all the lights turn green while I'm on my way so I'm not late and embarrassed about myself. And then meanwhile, the believers that are in Myanmar, they're just praying for food. 
They're just asking God to give them grace today. They, they are trusting in God's lordship because they are half a percentage point of the entire country that is filled with Buddhists who do not like them, and they're waiting for the next military coup that may run them out of their houses. And, and so you got to decide, are you going to trust in this? In, do you want the spirit? You know, do you want the spectacle of God magically giving you a, a, a parking space that is close at Walmart, or do you want the spiritual where He is transforming your life, where no matter what you suffered or what you encountered or what the devil throws at you or what the flesh tries to rise up in you, that you say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything? Because I don't need a close parking space. I don't need my life to be easy. What I want is for God to help me to be faithful. And we need to desire the spiritual transforming work that Christ does in our heart more than the spectacle of religious power in the world. And if you will trust in the transforming power that Christ does in your heart, then he will accomplish great and mighty works through you that sometimes will be incredibly quiet and nobody will ever see it. And then perhaps he will do some things that a lot of people will see. But the question is, which do you want? Do you want to be noticed by the world, or do you want to be faithful to Christ? And you put those things in the right order, and then suddenly life makes sense. It was one of the things that I learned while I was in seminary. Uh, my uh, systematic theology professor, Dr. Humphreys, one day we were sitting in class, and he said, gentlemen, because it was all guys that were in this particular class, he said, I, I want you to take out your notebooks and your pens this morning. I'm going to open up the class with what will be the most profound thing that I will teach you in two semesters of systematic theology. Well, we had been sitting in Dr. Humphrey's class for several weeks. He was an incredibly smart individual, very wise. At one point, he taught at a seminary in New Orleans where he was also the pastor of a storefront church down in Bourbon Street where he ministered to the, the prostitutes and the drunks as well as teaching as a professor in a seminary. He was godly. He was wise. He was smart. He was wonderful. He was hospitable. And so there we all sat ready to write down anything that he was going to say. And he said, he said, this is what you need to remember as you move into being a pastor, as some of you become husbands, as you become fathers, as you as an individual follow Jesus. He said, here it is. Christianity is the only thing that makes life make sense. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of times that being the guy in the vocation of pastor there are times where I pray, God, could we just have the spectacular? Could you just overwhelm us? Could you, could you do something that would be undeniably, you know, a, a big, big, big God thing? And he always presses back on my heart, Philip, how about you just be faithful? Just be faithful to me, and I'll take care of all of the outcomes. Don't ask for the spectacular. Don't ask for the spectacle. Don't try to work in a life of self-interest and self-preservation. Don't worry about being religious and pious before all the world. Instead, be a person of worship, be a person who trusts in the resurrection, and be a person who waits for the spiritual transformation of your soul by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let me encourage you today that as, as we move into a time of decision-making, that maybe there is a part in your heart where you have been holding on to self-interest, that you want everything to be about you and about your preferences, and I don't like this, and I don't like that, and I don't like the other. But instead, release that and say, God, how can you help me to be the most passionate worshiper of Christ that I can possibly be as a follower of you? 
Maybe you find yourself in a place where you have still been trying to please God by all of your good works, and you've, you have lost a little bit of the edge and the understanding of the power of the resurrection, that this Christ who has risen from the dead, that by His same power, He has risen, he has risen your dead soul to life. And it's by that power that we live and that we operate as believers and return back to that first love of Christ rather than a first love of accomplishing stuff on behalf of God. And maybe you need to just revive that place in your life where you say, God, I'm not looking for the outward signs. I'm not looking for you to rain gold dust from heaven. I'm going to stop praying about finding, you know, my way through traffic with all green lights. Lord, what I want is just the radical spiritual transformation of my soul, where I will say yes to you always, no matter where you call, no matter what you ask me to do, no matter who it is that you ask me to interact with, no matter what it is that I have to give up, sacrifice, turn away from, because God, I know that in you I have everything I will ever need. And that is how we find healing for our souls. Let's pray together. God, I just ask.